This is the ID Fanatic Podcast, coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto on Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. The podcast where we talk to real instructional designers for one half hour about their lives, their careers, and how they keep it all together. My guest this week is Dr. Elena Slakta of Austin, Texas, the self-proclaimed learning architect and founder of By Design Development Solutions. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I like being here on, well, you said Tuesday, but we are recording on a Monday. So what better way to Don't start a Monday? People, really? <laughs> Preparation is I never to be enough, live. Right? Live. Um, <laughs> now, in your LinkedIn profile, you say you're a mission-driven entrepreneur. That's correct. So what is your mission? So... Good question. My mission is to really change the way that we all think about learning. And so it's sort of twofold. I'm in business because I've worked in the learning and development industry in lots of different spaces, nonprofit, higher ed, corporate, community-based, government-based. And I've just found that learning is not done as well as it could be The other thing is I really like working with other entrepreneurs who are equally mission driven. So every one of my clients has a deep rooted passion to do something more than just make a profit. Looking through your LinkedIn resume, I keep seeing these words, Mm -hmm. diversity, Mm -hmm. gender, Mm -hmm. sexual health, Mm -hmm. urban youth, healthy relationships. And this has been going on since 2010. There is a reason. So these are very trendy issues today, circa 2020, at least in terms of diversity and gender spectrum issues. Uh, You've been working in the space for a decade. Your 2015 PhD is in human sexuality education with a specialization in culturally responsive education. So I'm curious as to what forces in your life have brought you to be so deeply concerned about these issues before they've become Mm -hmm. sort of common coin. Yeah. Well, for many people who due to life experience or circumstance, um, the common coin is common based upon your lived experience. And so for me, it's always been common and important to think about gender and to think about healthy relationships, because those are things that have been in my experience since I was a very young person, being a woman, um, living in a community um, that was very heteronormative. Um, It was important for me to learn and explore the diversity of sexuality and the diversity of gender expression, because I felt as a young person, I didn't align with what the norms, what the things were we were supposed to do as children and adults. I wanted to use education as a tool to help people normalize that there's more than one way to be in a relationship, to have a partner, to express your gender. And so I decided to get a PhD so that I could stay on that path and stay true to what I felt on the inside was a really important journey to help others be true to themselves and find their place in the world. Okay, so if you don't mind sharing, what, uh, how mm-hmm. did you feel that you were misaligned with your culture in order to uh, you know, spur this on? So one of the things I learned in my doctorate program is that there are significantly more uh, genetic gender makeups than the XX and the XY chromosome. And so that was incredibly validating and also incredibly illuminating that we tell people that you're either a boy or a girl, and therefore you need to do boy things or girl things. And the reality was that 
I didn't necessarily align with the girl things. And I'm not the only one. You could talk to many women and many men or many non-binary folks and they'll tell you that they didn't feel like what they were supposed to do. And I'm very athletic and I'm incredibly strong and I'm good with my hands and I'm, I'm assertive and I'm all the things that traditionally women and girls are not supposed to be. And I have been that way. If you were to sit down at the dinner table with my mom and my dad, they could tell you stories of how little, little Elena um, is the way she was since she came out of the womb. And those were not girl-like things. Um, and so ultimately, I just felt like the way the scripts that were given to us for how to be women, how to be men, there were literally two boxes you could check and I felt like I didn't fit into either one of those and wanted to figure out, well, there's got to be more boxes. There's got to be no boxes. How do we think about this differently? How do we how do we be differently and feel free to do that? And so that has been my experience as a young person and as an adult. I started out in academia uh in the space of adolescent sexual health like that was where my you know my heart was is wanting to to create an experience for young people of how to be more fully themselves in their sexuality and their gender expression at one point i thought for sure i was going to be a professor and a researcher and i would be happy and that that was going to be the life that i'd always wanted and i was in that space and i just wasn't happy and i it, it wasn't enough i wanted to have um more practical experiences and more practical applications. And so the space I went to next was actually working in the world of domestic violence through the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That was where I entered in as a trainer um, to help people who are counseling uh, survivors yeah. and family who have experienced domestic violence. I was training the counselors to provide services. I was just looking at your webinar for Military Families Learning Network. Yeah. So there, they were a group of people and are a group of people, they're still together, who work to support military families where there was one family member who had done service and they were re-entering into civilian right. society. And relationships can become complicated, especially when you have post-traumatic stress disorder due to any number of things that you can imagine when someone is in service. And so I had the luxury of working with them to provide training to the social workers who were supporting these families in the reunion and the coming together after being apart and living in different realities. And um, it was quite the adventure. I think that we have boxes in how we need to, how we should be as men and women who return from service. And the reality is that those experiences will affect us all differently and how we then reunify with our families will and also how people how perceive social us workers support or them. perceive them when they Absolutely. come back there's a lot of uh, sort of expectations yes. and then there's, there's, there's the general yes. expectation like you talked about pdsd there's general expectation in society that anybody who goes through some sort of uh you know transformative experience should then you know, merge back into their life as if nothing had happened kind of thing, because nobody else has yes. changed, just they yes. have. And so. And change is uncomfortable. COVID and experiencing our world pandemic is a great parallel experience and that so many people just want to go back to the way things were. They want to go back to the normal before COVID. And the truth of the matter is that we will never be able to do that, that we are forever changed by this experience, all of us in different ways. And therefore, there's no going back. There's only going forward. I mean, I agree. 
but I know that there are people who don't agree. For instance, business people who want everybody back in the office and can't imagine anything mm-hmm. different and should really do want to go back mm-hmm. to what happened before. And there's, there's still a huge amount of denial that uh, is resisting that and uh, not wanting mm-hmm. that to go forward. I mean, look at the American government. This is a crazy amount mm-hmm. of denial that's trying to keep things from moving forward. Well, I, I don't know that denial is, is the right word. I think that even deeper than that, and this isn't the government, this is all people. There's this idea between fear and comfort. And so if we're really comfortable with the way things were or the way things are, it takes a lot to then say, okay, at what point is my discomfort going to be worth the work, you know, to move into that new space? And for many of us, it is so difficult to push through the discomfort. So we stay comfortable and we never get to be on the other side into the next thing, the next way of being or the next environment, because the experience of discomfort is so unattractive to us that we just will never do it. But I can tell you in my experience as an athlete. And a marathon. Yeah. And um, let me tell you, I I didn't run a marathon to win any awards. I ran a marathon because I just wanted to have the experience. And it was one of the most painful things I've ever done, ever. Training, doing, doing the marathon. But my body and my spirit and my mind are forever changed. I am stronger because I pushed through that discomfort. And now my performance has improved so much because I did that. I had that experience and I came through the other side of it. If we haven't had an experience of being on the other side of that, then it's kind of like the unknown. And so I just think that if we can be a little more comfortable being uncomfortable, our worlds would be so vastly different and incredibly more optimistic, I think, for so many people. I want to point people to this resource that you've got on YouTube, this um, your webinar, because uh, and I'll tell you why in a sec. But first, for, for the listeners, this is called On Solid Ground. You can look it up on YouTube exploring strategies to help clients create, maintain healthy relationships. And one of the really interesting things to me, because I know somebody in an abusive relationship, is this Mm. graph here that you have uh, with a continuum between healthy, unhealthy, and abusive relationships. And you talk about how uh, at the juncture between healthy and unhealthy relationships, there is room to move the needle. There's room to move towards the healthy but at the juncture yeah. between unhealthy and abusive, you, you lose that. Somebody in the chat wrote that teaching abusive people about how to have healthy relationships is like giving a book to somebody who doesn't know how to read. Mm-hmm. I think for your listeners, the, the key thing um, to remember is that abuse is about control. And so the reason that you can experience physical violence or emotional abuse from a partner that also gives you incredible amounts of love, who you have this really deep rooted connection and and true, true love for, that control is there, whether you're in the loving experience or you're in the abusive experience. And it's the control that really characterizes an abusive relationship because love can be used to control um, just as much as emotional and physical violence can be used to control. Um, And that that is the piece that differentiates an unhealthy relationship from an abusive one. Great. Let's move on to something else. 
that I came <laughs> I, in. What a, what a, what a heavy topic. We, I had no idea we'd go into this today, but I'm well, happy to it, talk about it. It's, it's a, it's, it's a big it's part of my life. And it comes yeah. across really well in this mm-hmm. video. In another talk, you talk about the value of cohorts, a sharing experience among students. I recently did a focus group about people's e-learning experiences versus in-person training. And one of the positive things they had to say about e-learning by which they meant online in-person training was the breakout room or use of a whiteboard or working with colleagues on a problem, which is really a recreation of the types of activities that are typical in in in-person training events. I've been thinking recently about ways to incorporate this sort of interaction into asynchronous training as well. So uh, Mm -hmm. I want to hear from you how important this is in learning experience and should we make a goal of including it somehow into every learning experience, whether synchronous or, or not? Yeah. So great question. Interesting, interesting connection from domestic violence all the way to e-learning, but let's do it. Let's jump there. We're not afraid to be discomfortable. That's not a word. You it get is what I'm now. trying to say. <laughs> it is now. We have made it one. Um, yes. So I'm sure you, you're familiar with the 70-20-10 learning model. So the idea of this model is that we learn in three different kinds of environments, um, and they're not all equally powerful to create learning. So 10% of our learning comes from informal learning. That's lecture, the traditional classroom-based learning model. Only 10% of our how we learn and absorb information comes from that space. comes from social learning. And then 70% comes from like in real life, they call it on the job learning, but we know that not all learning is happening in corporations, right? Learning is happening in higher ed and K-12, learning is happening online and we watch a YouTube video and then we go fix our faucet, right? So that 70% of learning in real life is actually the most important thing that we should and need to be incorporating into all learning experiences. And I think that's incredibly powerful in answering your question because so much of learning traditionally has been the formal learning, like the lecture base, sitting in a classroom. um, And that's actually research shows that's really not what causes learning and and the transfer of information to our realities to happen. We have to have an opportunity to engage socially with the content or the information we're learning. And then most importantly, we have to have an opportunity to engage with that information in real life. And that that is what solidifies and gives us practice, the repetition, the feedback, hopefully, that we're applying that information, those best practices, the knowledge that we're gaining, we're applying it in the appropriate ways. So that's why I think the cohort is so important because you can use cohort methodologies to cre- to give you that 20% social learning, but you can also use a cohort where people are asynchronously yeah. applying the information they've learned formally in, into their lives. Like I think your masterminding that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation this morning is a great example. We all get together and we're sharing what we're working on. We're sharing our goals. And then we leave the mastermind. We take something from the mastermind that somebody else said, like, that's a good idea, Mitch. I'm going to go ahead and apply that to what I'm working on. I go apply it. And then I come back to my group, my cohort, and I, sh- I share, hey, Mitch, that thing that you that you talked about, well, I just did that. And this is what happened to me. Well, now, Mitch, this other person has listened to what you and I have just incorporated. And they're like, oh, wow, Elena, you incorporated Mitch's idea in a way I never thought about. That sounds really cool. Now I'm going to go do that. So what's happening in the social context, the cohort context, 
is you get to hear how other people are applying the information to their lives, which isn't always going to be the same. And it increases the likelihood that you're going to go do that in your own life and you feel confident about it, you're excited about it, and then you actually do that thing. But the cohort helps to reinforce and to provide that support that you mentioned that's so powerful. And I say that, you know, in today's world, we're, we, we had to jump virtual because of COVID. And so what happened is that we went mostly to that 10% yeah. space. Everything became formal learning, like you an e-learning, you click buttons, you read things, you watch videos, but that's actually not what people need. The information is great. Oftentimes the information is really, really helpful information, but we're going to forget the information and we're probably not going to even remember it accurately if we don't have both of the social component and the practical in real life component that we need. Um, and so that's when I do my work, I make sure that everyone is thinking about how do we take this great information and give people an opportunity to socially engage with it. You know, masterminds is a great idea um, or group coaching or even one-on-one -on -one coaching um, is wonderful. And then to also have exercises and opportunities to go do that take the information, go do something with it in your life, but then come back in a social context and get feedback on how did that go? Because it helps us to reinforce our learning and correct any ways in which we're not applying the information properly. That's a big challenge yeah. for online I think learning. The, I think the, the challenge that I see in our virtual world is scalability. I'd really interested if, if any of your listeners are, are hearing this and they know about scaling um, learning experiences, please reach out to me because it's something that I think we're going to probably be in a hybrid workspace and a hybrid learning environment going forward. I, that's my takeaway from our COVID experience is that most employers are like, you know, yeah, I maybe prefer my employees to be in the office, but we didn't do that bad. In fact, maybe we were even more productive when we were working remotely. And so I think hybrid, you know, some version of in the office and out of the office remote is going to be how we learn and how we engage. Um, but how do we scale that? I think in some ways it was easier to do classroom-based learning because you could throw a bunch of people in a room all at the same time and then they get to check the box. Oh, they did the 60 hour training or they did the, you know, whatever, the onboarding and they've been onboarded. Now we're done, right? Um, and yeah, scaling a hybrid model that incorporates both the, in, the formal learning and the social learning and the in real life. How do we do that in a way that's scalable, that doesn't take up a bunch of resources? I, I don't have an answer, but I know that's the question we should be asking ourselves right now. That's the two minute warning. No, I have these 10 questions that I ask at the end of every podcast that I stole from the actor studio and he stole from a uh, French uh, TV show by a guy named Bernard Pivot. Uh, before mm. I get into though, I want to just ask about work-life balance. So what's your, are you living alone? You're married? What's your life situation? So I am single. Work um, I, I, excuse me. I'm not single. I don't have children, which is why I think I'm a single person <laughs> with no children. No, I have a partner that my partner happens to be in India right now. And so I have the experience of the single person. But very shortly, I'll be traveling to India to go be with him. And I am ecstatic about that. Um, but no, I don't have children. And so I think because of that, it's much easier to do the work-life balance when um your accountabilities aren't, I don't know, but because I don't have children, I can't speak to the desire to have family dinners and to do things with your children, which pushes you to maybe have more of a balance between family and, and work. So for 
Yeah. Yeah. But so I'm very social. I love social my friends. I love my network here in Austin. I couldn't be happier with the people in my life at this time. And so uh, I enjoy I enjoy talking to them about all the different things I'm working on and g- getting their feedback and doing the same with them. What are you working on and what are you excited about in life? And how can I share any insights with you or just listen to help you to take those next steps? I'm all about love it when people are successful and I love being a part of their success. And so, um, yeah, my social life is really important to me. And, um, because of that, I I don't seem to have too many challenges with a work-life balance, but, um, I also have very rigorous, uh, like scheduling practices that I've been using for years and years about like time blocking on my calendar and how I manage my to-do lists and how I, I always in constant prioritization, like what should I be working on? Is this thing important, even though it, it's in front of me, but do I really need to be working on that? And so it makes it easier for me to have the, okay, I'm done working today. I've done the things that are the most important. Everything else can wait. So that sense of urgency to like always be working really isn't there because I know I've been prioritizing my life and my time. All right. Let's move into the questions. All right. Bring it on. Number one, what is your favorite word? Ugh, probably adventure. What's your favorite adventure that you've been on? Oh, man. Hmm. I recently, I bought a Vespa recently. It goes 65 miles an hour. And, um, I recently took two scooter trips, um, through the hills of Austin or outskirts in the, um, hill country. And, um, I just, there's nothing for those people who are listening that have motorcycles or something like it. There is just nothing like being wind in your hair, bugs flying on your windshield. Like it does just like the feeling of being on the road and something like that and being in beauty is just incredible. I love, love riding the Vespa. Right. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Stagnant. Right. I think looking looking at your your background that you've never been stagnant. <laughs> uh, no. If I ever feel stagnant, like, I'm like got to get out. I yeah. can't do this anymore. Yeah. Change is in your blood. Uh, what is. turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally? Connection. You could probably hear it through my prioritization of my community and my network. Um, but yeah, I am driven by connection. I love connecting others. I love being connected myself. Um, and I, even with strangers, it was funny. I was in Florida a couple of weeks ago for a friend's birthday and we were at a, at a bar listening to a band and, um, there's a gentleman sitting behind me and I just started talking to him. And then there were a few other folks that joined, um, and they came and sat close to us. I started talking to them and the gentleman behind me said, you could, you could start up conversation with a bug and it would be wonderful. And I'm like, yes, I, I suppose I'm very, very comfortable connecting and, and socializing with people. Right now to the flip side, what turns you off? I really don't like hierarchies. I understand their purpose, but I don't, I don't like it when, when there are certain characteristics that give people, okay, I don't like privilege. Let's put it that way. I have it um, very much so, um, but I don't like how privilege is created and how certain people, because of certain characteristics, get things that others don't. Um, I don't, so the hierarchies to me and, and 
those kinds of power structures where there's inherently people with power and inherently people without power, it's a huge turnoff to me. What is your favorite curse word? Oh, gosh. Um, probably the F word. I like to say it when I'm very passionate about something or very angry about something. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, so here in Austin, Texas, it's very hot and it's hot almost all year round. And so we have cicadas and uh, crickets. And so um, I grew up as a child in the summers. I went to Michigan and I would spend the summers with my dad. And that's where those uh, kind of sounds of the summer, the crickets and the cicadas. Uh, so they feel like summer adventures and summer vacations. And so interesting, I get to live in Austin where those cricket cicada noises are all year round every day. So I feel like I'm living in my summers of youth. It's quite nice. Sound or noise do you hate? So I just sent a petition to the city of Austin because they are going to install speed bumps in front of one of my houses. And it's a trafficked road with lots of commercial construction vehicles. And so when the trucks drive over those bumps, it leaves this incredibly loud banging noise and it's the worst. So that is a noise that I hate. <laughs> Should explain in terms of the my house's comment that you uh, own a few properties that you rent out. I do. Yes, I have two properties in Austin and um, I have five units. Uh, so one's a duplex, one's a triplex, but I'm working on a tiny home project. Yes. I am in the process of doing that. So it's very always, exciting. always a good idea for uh, people in L&T to have a side gig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Interesting. I would love to be a competitive athlete. And I don't know, I might be too old for that at this point. But um, I, when I was younger, and I had the energy and the, the, I guess, the strength, if you will, physically, um, I didn't have the capacity mentally to push through, as I mentioned, the kinds of discomfort that you need to be a really powerful athlete. And now that I'm older, I happen to have the mental capacity to push through pain, discomfort, um, not to the point of like injury, yeah, yeah. but to it to a point where I could be really a really great athlete, I think. But now I just don't have the time to train to, you know, take it to that level. Next, but I'd love it. Your next life, you'll try and get those two together. Sure. What profession would you not like not to do? Um, interesting question. I feel like I, I appreciate diversity of experience so much that I don't know that there would be anything that I would not try. But I don't think that I could be someone that does industrial manufacturing work where they're with so much repetition. I couldn't do anything that had a lot of repetition without diversity of experience in my working life. Uh, that's really important to me. So. And finally, the heaven question. I'm always self-conscious about this question because uh, personally I'm an atheist and everybody has different religions and stuff, but this is what they, sure. they wrote in, uh, in, the, in the survey in the mid-20th century and many people enjoy it. I remember, I remember listening to it on the actor studio and always thought it was a fun question. So mm -hmm. here it is. I call it the heaven question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like to hear God say, thank you 
because you have lived your life to the fullest and you have lived in the way that I could only hope that all humans would live during their time on earth. It's a biggie. <laughs> it's a lot to fulfill, a lot to live up to. Yeah, I mean, my goal in life is to live with no regrets as much as I can. And so I'm very purposeful in the kinds of things I do with life because I want to live it to the fullest. I don't want to have regrets on my deathbed. It's a worthy goal for all of us. Absolutely. All right, we're at the end. Fantastic. Thanks so it's much for this. It's been a pleasurable this. conversation. No, it's really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to read my, my outro. All right. The ID Fanatic drops every Tuesday at noon Eastern time. If you had a good time, please subscribe and let me know what you think on Podbean or Apple or by contacting me, Mitch Moldovsky, on LinkedIn. You can also follow my company page, The ID Fanatic, for updates and occasional free stuff. I sincerely hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>